Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. So thank you, Angelo, for joining us today. Um, can I ask for an introduction? Sure. So my name is Angelo Procolo. I'm a community pharmacist and have been for too many years uh, already, up to about 30 or uh, 30 plus. And uh, I still very much enjoy what I do. Uh, I, I have just, I suppose, over the years reinvented myself a bit and um, used the uh, the knowledge and the experience to delve into some different areas and, and do some fun things and along the way continue my association with community pharmacy. Thank you. Um, so you've just released an article with the AJP. Um, we're coming together. So I thought we could ask you a couple of questions about that one. Um, you've described an inequitable system that is trying to treat poison addiction depending on postcode. Um, so basically depending on where, where you're based, it depends on the kind of treatment you would experience. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, over the years, I've, I've, I've noticed that the, uh, the states and territories have um, moved towards different treatment models in the area of, of, of opioid addiction. And um, the way that's played out for the, for the uh, patient or, or the consumer is that um, depending on where they find themselves... Uh, they they have a very different relationship with their uh, treatment model, and and I think it it started to come to light to me years ago when we were overseeing the transfer of of patients to uh, different jurisdictions, um, whether it be from Victoria to Tassie or from New South Wales to Victoria or you know over to the west wherever it was. Um, we we found that it was it was uh, very what was required of the of the patient and, and what the system demanded was very different from the um, the clinical side of things in terms of things like the number of takeaways all the way through to the price that they were paying uh, and also um, how the pharmacy was being remunerated for their service. And it always struck me and it, it continued to, to strike me as odd that um, we couldn't pull that together and have a more equitable system across the country um, and maybe pull together the best parts of every system and, and have a, uh, a mega great system instead of um, you know good and bad in the different jurisdictions. Um, and and then effectively uh, that that translates to you know good and bad for the for the patient uh, depending on where you find yourself. So again, from all those points of view, whether it's uh, clinical or financial, um, the reason I wrote the article was to highlight the differences and hopefully to bring some sense to the um, treatment options available and try and pull them together into a uh, into a better system across the country. Right. Um, you've referred to addiction as a chronic relapsing disease, but it can be seen as anything but that. Well, first of all, uh, I, I'm not going to take the credit for the World Health Organization's description of addiction as a chronic relapsing disease, but I, I 
I did read that many years ago and it resonated with me um, because if we don't recognise the fact that um, it's relapsing, that's the word that always um, intrigued me. If we, if we don't recognise that word and understand what it means and its implications, then addiction is not the area that you should work in um, because you will be very... Um, uh, what's the word? You'll be uh, very disappointed with your patients who will relapse. And if you, you, you know, I, I see some pharmacists, some medical practitioners take that personally uh, and they can't because it's not recognising the actual condition and a, norm, a normal part or sequence in the, in the condition is that you do go back to uh, the using of drugs in most situations. Most people will. Um, what our job is or what I've always seen my job is and I try and uh, pass this on is that we need to be there in those in those times where a patient goes through that trough and goes back to using for whatever reason like the person who is a cigarette smoker who smokes stops smoking goes back to smoking when their wife leaves them or they something else happens they lose their business or whatever um, or they're happy or something great happens and they associate that with uh, you know a drink and a cigarette whatever it is that brings them back to to the addiction that's doing them harm um, we need to recognize that that is a part of uh, the the condition so um, when you talk about a chronic relapsing uh, disease what was the question <laughs> <laughs> so yes it's been described as a chronic relapsing disease um, but some people see it as anything but that. Sure, sure. So the, the reason I said some people see it as anything but a chronic relapsing uh, disease is because I, I, I think that um, the word disease uh, possibly throws people that don't work in this area and they, they see it as a, as a moral failing or a criminal offence, um, but they don't really see it as a medical condition. And I think if you've worked in this area for long enough, uh, you can understand that it is a brain condition that what is happening to the addict is there's a, a a physical change in their brain that is reversible but it's a long road uh, back and it takes a lot of time to reverse uh, the condition and it won't always happen um, but that doesn't diminish uh, the, the the work and the effort that we have to put in to moving people towards um, getting better and getting on with their, their lives. And um, I, I think that uh, for a long time, ORT or opioid replacement treatment has been seen, uh, especially by people that don't work in the sector, as um, not a good way to treat addiction because we're just creating another addiction. Um, we're substituting possibly MS content or, or heroin with methadone or buprenorphine. But it's a little bit like substituting smoking a cigarette with vaping or, um, or gum or lozenges that contain nicotine. Although the nicotine is still there, so although the opioid is still there, to, to continue the analogy, um, it, it does, that, that substance doesn't do the same amount of harm to any, uh, to any degree uh, compared to the, the illicit substance um, or the substance being used illicitly because it's not associated with the criminality. Um, it's not associated with the necessarily with, uh, with the injecting. It's, it's a completely 
different way of administering um, a similar drug. Um, the, the huge difference between um, the short-acting uh, opioids that are often abused, whether, whether they're injected or in, inhaled or ingested, uh, and, a, and a, a long-term substitution treatment like methadone or buprenorphine is, is that, that precise uh, difference that it lasts much longer in the body. So we're not in a situation where you're continuously chasing the next fix so that you can not go into withdrawal. And that means you can get on with your life and you can do stuff. Um, and it, it, it's really life-changing what it can do. And we've seen it so many times over the years where, you know, within days, people who come into your pharmacy um, and have a real problem with um, substance use um, can change very, very quickly and re-establish contact with their family and get a job and um, do stuff that we... Uh, consider quite normal and and that's exactly what it is it's it's a normalizing treatment which is really exciting and it's um for me it was it's always been a much more exciting area of pharmacy to work in than you know uh, treating people that have high blood pressure or their hair's falling out like mine or um you know that 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 kind of thing it's just so much more rewarding and satisfying as a as a pharmacist to help these people and to save a life i mean not a lot of us go to work uh, not a lot of people go to work uh, and can say that they saved a life, but that's what we do in pharmacy by by running a really good program. We save lives, and that's um, you know if if that can be your mantra, well, you know, all power to you. Good stuff. Thank you. Um, the war on drugs has been described as a failure. In your article as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So the war on drugs is. Um, I, I think it was a really romantic um, statement made by a by a, an American politician many years ago, and it's it's just been something that I think a lot of people since have hung their their hat on without really thinking about it, and um, it, it it's just important that we move away from um, the, this this statement and start thinking much more about the medical condition and how we, we treat it rather than um, calling it a war and discarding the people who uh, happen to be on the wrong side of the, uh, of the wall that we've built. Um, so that was really, you know, what I was alluding to with, um, with that statement. So out of all the pharma companies that are known, Purdue Pharma's had quite a lot of discussions about it. Um, it seems like... Um, because obviously they weren't so um, descriptive with describing the addictive nature of the medication. So I guess I'd ask you a little bit about your research on Purdue Pharma because I know they've come back with a new name. Yeah, so they've, 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 Purdue Pharma has changed their name a little bit like the disgraced um, entrepreneur or businessman who starts a company, goes broke, and then does the same thing under another company name. And that's it feels very much like that. But... I suppose the only comment I'd make, I think you know, most people already know lots about Purdue, so I'm not going to um, bore you with with that information. But I, I, I think that um, what is particularly interesting is the system in America that allowed Purdue Pharma to infiltrate um, 
the uh, the economy the way that they did. And what I mean by that is the the relationship between the medical officer, the pharmacy, and the insurance company was this Bermuda Triangle where the patient just became collateral damage in the bigger picture, which was around, um, you know, prescribers writing down the name of a drug which was quite expensive that was funded by a um, an insurance company and the pharmacy uh, dispensed it. So everybody was financially uh, looked after and the problem is that the patient uh, ended up with an addiction to a drug that they uh, usually didn't need and certainly uh, didn't request uh, the opportunity to become addicted to such a potent opioid with all of its problems um, uh, that we know can come with uh, opioid addiction all the way through to um, the most devastating, which is an opioid overdose and, and subsequent death. And we know that even uh, to this day in America where where this all sort of unfolded, um, there are over 100,000 deaths a year from opioid overdose um, and uh, you know that's a, that's a scary number. You know that's a an MCG full of spectators on Grand Final day. Um, and I think that uh, we're we're lucky that we haven't reached those levels, but we're also um, you know very cautious looking at it and thinking, well, how have we avoided it, and what do we have to do to um, uh, even minimise the uh, the number of overdoses we have here. I always think about it in terms of those prescription opioids are coming out of my safe in the pharmacy. Uh, so even if I'm not a um, designated harm minimization pharmacist, uh, I, I have a safe and I have opioids in it. Um, so I contribute either um, directly or indirectly to, to, the, um, to the problem. And hence, I need to be a part of the solution uh, and part of the solution is being aware of the problem, being aware of the people that are susceptible to um, the, uh, the overdoses that can occur. Um, we now have access to naloxone more broadly. Um, it's an amazing drug. In 2016, it became an S3, uh, which is something I'm very uh, proud of. Uh, I think that the fact that we can... Um, now supply that drug in the pharmacy is a big plus. I'm disappointed that uh, we still, as pharmacists, have to register for a, a Commonwealth program to be able to hand out the drug free of charge. I think that every pharmacy in Australia should be able to access the PBS and just give out this drug where it's appropriate. So I think that the pharmacist at the pharmacy should be able to access the PBS regardless of whether they're registered and have a special scheme in place um, and just be able to hand out this drug, not just to the people on our programs for opioid addiction, but to people who are on high doses of opioid drugs. Um, because as we know, uh, if you're on a high dose of an opioid, it doesn't take much um, to be pushed over the threshold and go into an overdose situation, whether it's because you take too much of the opioid or whether it's because your medical condition deteriorates uh, and the drug becomes more potent. Um, I'm thinking specifically about respiratory conditions, but also uh, the combination of drugs. And, and again, people are not 
uh, as aware, patients uh, are not as aware of the implications of even combining uh, a, a substance like alcohol with an opioid um, or other CNS depressants. Um, and so it's, it's really not that difficult to find yourself in an overdose situation and the presence or availability, availability of naloxone, having it um, on standby is very important and can save um, lives of, of our loved ones if, uh, if we have it around. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you about. So I just, <laughs> um, so you were able to work with a GP clinic um, for the ability to provide the long-acting injectable buprenorphine. Um, can you able to tell us a little bit about how you were able to do that um, before it became available? Sure. So the the idea of pharmacists injecting long-acting. Uh, buprenorphine uh, really is is a logical uh, step in the progression of uh, the treatment of, of addiction um, in in pharmacy, and it 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 really stems from the fact that our scope of practice has expanded. So I thought it was obvious that we moved into this area, and that combined with the fact that we can't get enough GPs to work in addiction. And the ones that are working in this area are really busy and struggle to take on more patients. And when long-acting injectable buprenorphine became available, in a funny way, it actually made the GP's life even busier because they went from seeing patients every stable patients every three to six months to potentially having to see them every month because they needed to inject them with the LAIB. So it just seemed ridiculous that um, a drug that was going to offer so much to the patient was in fact stressing the system even more than it already was. So that's kind of where the idea came from for me anyway to say, well, let's challenge the system a bit and, and look at how pharmacy can become more involved and um, you know, I, I talked to some of the doctors that I work with closely and, um, you know, they were all very supportive, certainly the ones that I talked to. Um, so it was just a matter of, of setting up an opportunity where I could work with a clinic and um, uh, be the, uh, the administrator of the drug. Uh, and it's, it's really quite a simple procedure, uh, injecting a drug subcutaneously it's probably easier than an intramuscular injection. Um, and hence, you know, I don't really see any barrier other than the fact that it's a new space for the pharmacist to work in. But it has so many upsides for doctors, even if a lot of them would oppose it. Uh, I, I, the majority that I talk to don't see it that way. It has upsides for the pharmacy uh, because... Otherwise, um, as our patients migrate, mainly from um, uh, oral uh, sublingual uh, suboxone uh, or buprenorphine, subutex, uh, as they progress from that or move from that or even from methadone to LAIB, I, I saw that we were going to start losing contact with some of the patients that we'd built a relationship with for, for many years and had so much success with and um, were able to pass on so much important information because you can't teach 
a patient lots about addiction in one or two visits. It really does take a long time and it, it, it's a building of trust. And again, I found over the years that pharmacists seem to have more time with their patients than a lot of the GPs do. Um, and I know that that's not always the case, but it is a lot of the a lot of uh, the, the the times that I've seen. Um, and so I I I um, I really valued that opportunity, and I didn't want to lose it. So part of it was born out of out of that. Um, and certainly, I would never stand in the way of a better treatment. So if patients are going to move on to LAIB and it, it's suitable for lots of patients, not all, but lots, then um, I, th- I think it's really important that we find a way to continue our involvement and um, injecting LAIB in the pharmacy is certainly a way that we uh, we can do that and keep contact with, uh, with our patients. Um, and methadone. Thinking about methadone as a treatment that's been... Um, great for patients um, for a long period of time. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on methadone? Well, meth- methadone is still the, um, the gold standard when we talk about treating opioid addiction and it, it's, it's the treatment that's used more than any other around the world. Um, the, uh, the ratio in Australia is uh, maybe 60-40 methadone or 70-30 methadone. I should have looked it up before. I forgot. But it's, it's certainly more methadone than buprenorphine still, although uh, there is an, an increase. There's a, there's a bullet next to the buprenorphine. More people are moving, especially now that we have LAIB. Um, but I, I'd hope that um, we can learn from um, the... Uh, the years that we have been dispensing uh, methadone and do it do it better for the huge number of patients that we still have on methadone, um, and the the advancements that we've made hopefully will inform uh, a term that I quite liked I heard recently called precision medicine. Uh, so a, a better way of of dispensing methadone, such that we take into account the fact that there are. Uh, different levels of metabolic activity uh, that that patients exhibit with regard to methadone. So we have all the way from ultra slow metabolizers all the way to ultra fast metabolizers, and we do have ways of predicting which patients fall into those categories. And we we don't really use that information, or we don't explore uh, the the data that we we could acquire uh, with regard to that information to make treatment options better for patients. So it has implications from a safety point of view because um, slow metabolizers can accumulate methadone and that's a particular issue as we induct them into treatment. Um, But because of that fact, we've always been very slow with the increased doses of methadone as patients start. So for the 10% of patients, we reckon about 10% of patients that are ultra-fast metabolizers of methadone, we're sort of doing them a, a big disservice because we're, we're in a sub-therapeutic range for a much longer amount of time because we're going slow with the increases. Um, and what that does is it, it pushes patients away because the methadone isn't fulfilling the, uh, the need that they have for the opioid. Um, so they're going into withdrawal. So if we could identify the fast metabolizers 
and um, have that induction period uh, a little bit different for them so that the dose increases a bit quicker, but also then look at the possibility of um, dosing twice a day instead of once a day. We then create a situation where we'll have a better response and we'll have patients doing uh, better on methadone. And we always look at it and say, well, why is somebody dropping out of treatment? And, you, you know, you drop out of treatment because of lots of reasons. Some of, sometimes it's financial, but sometimes it's because clinically it's not doing the job for you. Um, so if we could use the information that we have and, and, and we can do it with a pretty simple blood test now, we can look at... Well, we've always been able to look at peaks and troughs and, and look at that ratio, and that can help us work out whether we have a slow or a fast metabolizer. But we can also look at serum met, um, uh, methadone levels and serum levels of the major non-active metabolite. And if we look at that ratio, that can also inform us and tell us whether we have a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer, and therefore... Um, that can help us uh, in in our um, uh, estimation of, of where that patient needs to be with their dosing, with the actual number of milligrams, but also with the um, the concept of uh, possibly using BD dosing. Mm, thank you. Um, so I know you're a guild member for the Victorian Ranch. So you've been part of the guild for a long period of time. Um, I guess, um, advocating for owners of pharmacy. So I thought I'd ask about some of the work that the Guild maybe has achieved or maybe what they might be looking at this year or what your work on the Guild has been like. Sure. So, oh, that's a big, that's a big question. The Guild, the, the Guild, the guild uh, where we're heading. The guild. There's lots, lots of stuff uh, that, the, uh, that the Guild does. One, one of the uh, things that the Guild is involved in and has been for a couple of years and uh, the PSA has also um, uh, lent some support behind it, and 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 I, I I talk about the area of pharmacist prescribing, um, and there's a trial going on with uh, with Monash in the um, Frankston area, uh, which is an area that is um, um, just, just outside of uh, of Melbourne, but has a a, a huge problem with, uh, with, with opioid addiction and a lack of um, uh, pharmacy points for pickup, but more specifically, as we have all around the country, but quite focused in this area, a lack of prescribers. Um, so we're, we're looking at a, um, a trial down there where we increase the responsibility of the pharmacist in making uh, more decisions around uh, treatment, which includes things like uh, takeaway options and dosing between a range. Um, we hope that, well, certainly my hope was that this would have been a, a bit more extensive from from the uh, from the get go. I really hope that it was going to be more about a a trial of pharmacist prescribing um, but I certainly at least hope that it's that's where we're headed with it so we're moving hopefully towards um, more autonomy for the pharmacist and ultimately um, creating a situation where the pharmacist actually becomes the prescriber so I, I that's one of the areas uh, certainly 
uh, of interest uh, in my work at the Guild that I'm that I'm trying to accelerate, and a lot of people around the country, and I speak principally of uh, Lisa Nissen up in Queensland, has done lots of work in this area, and uh, you know I hope um, that uh, it it really changes so that we can. Uh, rather than you know, I spent so many years trying to recruit doctors to work in this area, and to tell you the truth, I'm really um, over it. Uh, I don't try and recruit doctors anymore. If they don't want to work in this area, then so be it. Um, and I'd rather put my energy into trying to change conditions so that pharmacists or, or change regulations so that pharmacists can actually prescribe. And even though this is a small area, it may seem like an odd area to to push the boundary because we're talking about uh, S8 drugs, but it's a logical area because it's such an area of need, uh, and hence I think it's um, the area where we should be concentrating our efforts. Brilliant. And you've recently had a career change, and you're working now with Origin Youth Mental Health, um, and you're taking opportunities to work in governance. So I think um, it represents a very unique opportunity for a pharmacist to be working in this area. So if you could tell us a little bit about your new role and what you're working on. Yeah, so I've been out of ownership for um, almost a year, um, still very actively uh involved in community pharmacy um, but seeing it in a slightly different light working as a uh, as a as a locum and working for a couple of mates um, having a little bit more flexibility in my life getting to play with my kids more uh, which is uh, fun Um, but from a professional point of view it's also giving me the opportunity as you said to uh, do some work with origin youth health which is a uh, youth mental health um, uh, organization uh, headed by uh, Pat McGorry and, you know, he's done some amazing uh, work trying to identify early on uh, uh, young people with uh, psychoses and uh, hoping that with that early intervention we can stop uh, the condition progressing and uh, help young people move to the next stage of their life. Um, so in my role as a community pharmacist uh, and, and as an owner, I've worked for a long time with Origin and their and their different um, services, uh, Epic and um, Headspace, uh, and uh, I've now had the opportunity to sort of uh, jump onto the other side of the wall and work with with Origin and help them uh, maximise and um, make their pharmacy services more in line with what patients need. Uh, I've, I've often thought that um, uh, patients, especially young people, uh, don't always get the, um, the focused uh, attention that they need in community pharmacy because it's a little bit different and it might be a bit, maybe a bit harder, but certainly a bit different. And not all community pharmacists have necessarily the skills that are, I think, required to um be able to give the young people what they require uh, in a in a package that is suitable to them. So I'm trying to help Origin uh, see that and um, work better with their young people from the pharmacy's point of view. So create a, a system that uh, means that uh, the pharmacy service is not going to be the reason they stop engaging with their treatment, but rather a reason why they stay engaged with treatment.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.